0: So we're looking at 1 Corinthians, and today at the subject of spiritual gifts. Now the truth is, we could spend weeks on this chapter 14 alone, couldn't we? But chapter 15 is all about the resurrection, and Easter Sunday is next Sunday. So rightly or wrongly, we are going to look at this chapter, chapter 14, in one go. And that's dangerous. Because spiritual gifts, this issue of spiritual gifts, can be hugely divisive, can't it? Especially for a church like ours. So before we look at the Bible, I want to make a few introductory comments. Firstly, Corinth was not an exemplary church. Okay, so our attitude should not be, oh, we should be more like Corinth. Secondly, the early churches were closer in size to what we think of as home groups and the New Testament is remarkably short on directions for what church services should look like which means that in different places and at different times some things are going to look the same and some things are going to look well different. Thirdly, personally I dislike any titles that divide Christians, true Christians. And one of the joys of being in a church like Westlake is worshipping with and learning from all of these people who are different from me. But the truth is that sometimes titles can bring clarity, can't they? And when it comes to the gift of the Spirit, you can be a continuationist, and believe all the gifts of the Spirit continue today. Or you can be a cessationist and believe that some gifts, especially revelatory gifts like tongues and prophecy, have ceased. Or you can fall somewhere between those two and be open but cautious. And in a church like Wesley, we have the full spectrum of views on this issue. The crucial thing for us as elders is that the Bible is our or this other person's supreme authority. Now, personally, I'm at the continuationist end of the spectrum, but there are people who disagree with me whom I hugely respect. And some of you may be coming to Westlake precisely because crazy stuff isn't happening here like it might be elsewhere. You know, one of the other churches in Lausanne has a strapline, the place where miracles happen. Well, we have a joke in our family that Westlake is the place where miracles don't happen. But when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, the truth is I'm coming from a continuationist perspective. So I don't know whether that makes me a Daniel in a den of lions or a lion in a den of Daniels. But I'm a continuationist because I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And that's to say that you can be a continuationist and still have the Bible as your supreme authority and not believe that everything that is said to be of the Holy Spirit is of the Holy Spirit. You can believe in the continuation of the gift of the Spirit and hear someone say, thus says the Lord, and think, oh no, he doesn't. Because spiritual gifts are not self-authenticating. But fourthly, You can be a cessationist and still believe that God speaks powerfully today through his word and that his word has the power to make the spiritually dead live, which frankly is the greatest miracle of all. And you can be a cessationist and still believe that God answers prayer, even prayers for healing and miracles of provision. In other words, there is a whole lot more that unites true believers, wherever you fall on the spectrum, than divides us, provided the word of God, the Bible, remains our authority. So we can't cover everything in this passage, okay, but we are gonna major on what Paul majors on, which is prophecy. First point then, love and desire. Look at verse one. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now that word pursue can have a number of different feelings to it, can't it? You could say he's pursuing his interest in stamp collecting, but that doesn't sound like there's much passion in that, does it? It doesn't suggest much passion, does it? But you could also say, he is so in love with her, he buys her flowers and chocolates, he just doesn't give up. He is pursuing her, and that sounds a whole lot more passionate, doesn't it? And the word Paul uses here for pursue is translated elsewhere as to persecute, to go after, to hunt down, to seek out, to chase. And that sounds more energetic than stamp collecting, doesn't it? So Corinth, Westlake, pursue love. Go after love. Make love the thing that you are running after. Go after it. In the way you think of and speak and treat others, in the way you handle spiritual gifts, Let love be the thing that is controlling you. And just think how many disagreements, even over this issue of spiritual gifts, how many disagreements in churches or in friendships or in families on any number of issues would take on a very different feel if our fundamental disposition was to love the other one and to love them sacrificially Okay, but Paul doesn't say, pursue love and forget about these spiritual gifts, move on. Even in a church that was getting so much wrong about spiritual gifts, Paul says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now we'll get to what he means by prophesy later but earnestly desire spiritual gifts, that comes with a bit of a challenge, doesn't it? Because the truth is we can stagnate in our Christian lives. Our knowledge of God, our experience of God, even what we expect of God can plateau and we can stop growing, maybe even decline. You know, the rings on our tree aren't increasing in number We're not really applying ourselves to grow personally or to grow in those gifts that might help others grow. So, whatever your personal position on gifts, what is the gauge of your spiritual desire reading at the moment? Are you stagnating or are you taking steps to grow? Are you putting yourself in the place where your knowledge and your experience of God can increase through his word, through prayer, through gathering with his church? And what about the gifts that he has given you, that he's already given you? I mean, maybe that's leadership. Maybe you've got leadership skills, whether in church or at work. Are you honing those skills? Are you developing that gift? Maybe there's a book you could read to take you to the next stage. Or maybe your gift is more in teaching, whether that's in home group or with the kids in Sunday school or as part of your work. Or maybe it's evangelism, telling other people about the faith. Are you seeking to improve that skill so that those you teach or reach out to understand more? Now, whatever your gift, ask yourself, What could I do to grow in this, so that I can have more to give to others, to help them grow? Second point, head and heart. Look at verses 14 to 15. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Okay, so in a church where they were putting way too much emphasis on the spiritual and especially on tongues, Paul does not say, stop. He says, yes, your spirit and your spiritual response matters, but so does your mind. Now, one of the dangers for churches or for us as individual Christians, one of the dangers we face is that we can move to either extreme. Either we are all head or mind and our faith becomes increasingly cerebral and it becomes a matter of propositions and doctrines to be ticked off as believed and we can become dismissive, even condescending, of those who are more expressive about their faith. Or at the other end, we can become all heart and the life of the mind isn't valued and we don't think deeply about God or about what Jesus has done for us. And our approach to his word or the songs that we sing can become increasingly superficial. We believe, but we couldn't rightly say what we believe or why we believe it. But Paul refuses to divide these two things. He refuses to divide head and heart. It's neither, either, or, but both, and. You know, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love him with your everything. Our response to God should always be with our whole self. That in response to all that Jesus has done for us, in response to God's incredible, mind-blowing, emotion-stirring love for us, expressed in Christ, Our minds should be blown, our emotions should be stirred. We should try to intellectually grasp and understand something of the depth of the gospel, that the Son of God would die for us and then respond to those depths in prayer and song with hearts that are overflowing with joy. It's always head and heart. But if the head does matter, it means that when you come to church, you've got to be able to understand what is being communicated. Third point, intelligible and controlled. Sue, my wife, grew up in Japan and she speaks Japanese. You know, strangely, I don't. So Sue could express her love to me in Japanese and she could tell me all that I mean to her and I wouldn't have a clue what she was saying. I mean, she could be ordering sushi and a litre of bubble tea for all I know. For something to mean something to you, you've got to be able to understand it. And in verses one to 25, Paul is making the case that if you want to help others grow, in fact, if you want to grow yourself, what goes on in church has to be intelligible. Verse six, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Now, whatever you think the gift of tongues is, Paul's point is clear, isn't it? He's not denigrating tongues. He's saying that growth comes through understanding, through grasping God's truth through the mind. And prophecy, which brings some revelation and teaching, which imparts knowledge, they do that because they're understandable. And any musician or soldier could tell you that, Paul says. Verse 7. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? I mean, if a piece of music is to be a piece of music, if it's going to do anything to you, if you're going to be able to listen to it and appreciate it and go, "Mm, that was beautiful, then there has to be a difference between the notes, doesn't there? It can't just be a noise. And the army on the field of battle, if the bugler fluffs it, All of his comrades are going to be stood there scratching their heads, wondering was that the call to advance or to retreat? So while Paul doesn't say don't speak in tongues, he does say don't do it in church if there's no interpretation. It has value for you privately, personally, but for the church gathered earnestly desire to impart God's truth to people in ways that they can understand so that they can grow. But the same is true as we try and explain the gospel to others, isn't it? You know, what Jesus has done for us. I mean, that is part of what Paul is talking about in verses 16 and 17 and 22 to 25, where he talks about outsiders and unbelievers. That when we pray and speak, we want to communicate the gospel in ways that people who don't yet understand can understand. Okay, so whatever your view on gifts, Let's be asking God for greater skill, for more wisdom, for greater giftedness, for increasing insight and sensitivity, to be able to explain things to others, whether that's to our kids in our own family or in Sunday school, or to the youth, to our teenagers, or to our neighbors or our friends. Let's be asking for that ability to explain the gospel to them in ways they understand, so they get the gospel and come to faith and grow in their faith. Okay, but as well as being intelligible, in verses 26 to 40, Paul says that whenever any of us speak in church, it's going to be under control. It's going to be ordered. It's not going to be chaotic. Verses 31 and 32. You can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. And the other day, one of my daughters, Hannah, was cycling through Bern. And at one of the major intersections, the traffic lights were down. And you can just imagine the chaos that would happen when that happens, couldn't you? I mean, especially at rush hour. And there'd be honking and there'd be people pushing in in the cars and and gridlock would never inevit- be inevitable in the end. But she said that there was a single policeman standing there in the middle of this intersection And she said it was incredible to see him take control of the situation. And through his hand signals and his body movements, he had everyone moving again. And Paul is saying, when a church pursues love, it will not look like chaos at the crossroads, you know, everyone trying to push in. Love will express itself in a right order in people giving way in self-restraint so that the most people possible can be built up and encouraged. Now when I was a doctor I had two colleagues who were at opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to their desks. One literally had no surface to work on because of the piles of patient notes and medical papers and textbooks that were on his desk. The other was so meticulous that his desk was spotless, except for his finely sharpened pencils, which were all neatly placed in a row. And when it comes to our different views on the gifts of the Spirit, The danger is that we can end up either with chaos or with everything in neat rows. But Paul is saying the gift of the spirit and the way you exercise them are always going to be in line with God's character. And God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. But that doesn't mean that he's British. It doesn't mean that everything has to be kept buttoned up and tight-lipped. When Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again of the Spirit, Jesus said to him, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. In other words, Nicodemus You can't box in the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the first Pentecost, when the disciples, those first disciples, were so full of the Spirit that the onlookers thought they were drunk, those same disciples proclaimed the gospel in words that the crowd could understand. And Paul is saying, Church, do the same. Don't behave in ways that people walk in and think you are crazy. Out of love, behave in ways that mean that people hear and understand the gospel. The gift of the Spirit do not control you. You can control them. And out of love, you must. Fourth and last point upbuilding and tested. Now it's hard to miss Paul's emphasis in this chapter, isn't it? Because he keeps on hammering away at it. Verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church verse 5, so that the church may be built up. And then verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Okay, so Paul's preference for prophecy over tongues is because it encourages and comforts and convicts us of sin. And as it does, it builds up the church. It builds up God's people. But that begs the question, doesn't it? What is prophecy? What does it look like? And there are multiple views on this, so I'm just gonna give you mine. Prophecy is a message of encouragement or comfort, maybe of correction or direction that the Lord brings to your mind for someone else. I mean, you might be sat in church and you notice your friend and the Lord brings a Bible verse to mind for them and you go and share it with them and they say, do you know what, I really needed to hear that today. It might be that you are sat somewhere and you can't get this other person out of your mind. So you go find them and you pray for them and you encourage them in God and they go away encouraged. It might be when you pray in a time of open prayer and maybe you quote a scripture or there's something you say and someone else is sat there and they go, wow, that really spoke to me. It might be someone speaking up front at church and they say something and for the next week, you can't get this out of your head. You feel like the Lord is speaking to you on this issue. But like we saw last week in chapter 13, prophecy is like looking through a glass dimly. It's imperfect, it's not authoritative teaching. And as the Lord's people in the new testament it's interesting isn't it we are never told to be under the authority of prophets but of elders and in the list of qualifications for elders prophecy doesn't get a mention but being able to teach does and because Prophecy is us expressing something that we think the Lord has laid on our hearts and because we are fallible, the way we're going to perceive that or express it or interpret it is also going to be fallible. And that means we test it. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. In other words, just because someone says, thus says the Lord, doesn't mean it is. But ask yourself, why does Paul say, don't despise prophecies? Well, probably because people in some of the churches were prophesying stuff that was way off beam. And I mean, let's face it, you don't have to be around churches for long before you realise that some pretty weird stuff goes on. And when that happens, the temptation is that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead, Paul says, test it, weigh it, And in Acts, we get a case study of Paul doing just that. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the elders of the church at Ephesus, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay, so in some way, the Spirit is prompting Paul, he's getting the sense that he should go to Jerusalem and he senses some danger. But then in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 21, various believers warn him against going to Jerusalem. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And a man called Agabus even binds his own hands and feet with Paul's belt and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, so everyone is sensing the same thing, aren't they? Paul's going on to Jerusalem but that that journey is dangerous and that it could end in his imprisonment. But while everyone else interprets that as meaning that Paul shouldn't go, Paul clearly sees that as the wrong interpretation. He tests it against God's directions and calling on his life. Now, That's great for Paul because he was an inspired apostle, but we're not. So how do we test the insights and the hunches and the impressions that we think might be from the Lord? By the one reliable standard we have, by God's infallible and never wrong word by the teaching of Paul and the other apostles, by the Old and the New Testaments. And it is as this word dwells in us richly, as his word increasingly shapes our responses to life, the universe, and everything, that the Spirit will have a reservoir of his word in our hearts and our minds to draw on that he can prompt us with, that he can bring to our minds so that we can encourage and comfort and challenge each other. And as we do that, we will grow and the church will be built up and it will be truly word and spirit, head and heart.